the preaching of his word. So let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we, Lord, we give you, you thanks for calling us together, Lord, for drawing us together as your people, Lord. And as we prepare to hear your word read and your word preached, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would meet us and would fill us. Lord, we pray that you would speak through what you've already spoken in your word. Lord, may we have eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have us to hear from your word tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks be to God. Well, two weeks ago, Tab highlighted what he called the reality gap. That gap between God's promised reality and our perception of that reality. Between our knowledge of God's promises to us and our experience of them. As we live in this gap, we, we live with this, with this constant tension. I don't know if you felt that the last two weeks as we've looked at God's Word, but there's been this, this constant tension that I like to think of as the trust tension between, between whether Abram is going to look to God or look elsewhere, between whether he's going to take God at his word or take matters into his own hands. Will he look to God alone, or is he going to look to himself? Is he going to look to others? Is he going to look to the world and its ways to give him what God has promised? And the truth is this, uh, this, uh, this truth, this trust tension is something that we, we all deal with. I think it's a, it's a struggle that we all have, this tension of are we going to trust what God has promised? Where, where are you aware of this gap right now. As you consider God's promises, perhaps it's his, perhaps it's his promise to, to give you direction for your life, to, to lead you in the way you should go, and, and you know that that's true, and yet you sit with no clue of what the future looks like, and there's this tension of, am I going to trust God and his word, or am I going to take matters into my own hands? Or maybe it's his promise to provide for your needs, your, your financial, your emotional, your spiritual needs, and you're and your questioning, is God going to meet these? Whatever the realities of your life, I think the truth is for all of us that, we can, that, we're, that, we're, that we're aware that we're facing this trust tension. 
We're all tempted to take matters into our own hands, thinking that our way is best, thinking that, that we know better than God how to bring about his plan for our lives. And as we live in this gap where, where, our trust in, in God, where our trust in God and his plans is constantly tested, we have this story in Genesis 14 of Abram conquering the land to give us, to, to give us a, a ground-level view of what it looks like to trust God in the tension. Our story here unfolds in, in three scenes. The first two scenes setting up and describing this physical battle over the land, leading us to the third scene where Abram faces a spiritual battle. So the first scene is the battle of the kings, and we see this in verses 1 through 12. Verses 1 through 3 here set the stage for the scene, and we're just going to take a very high-level view of this. But verses 1 through 3 set the stage. Moses writes, he says, In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariak, king of Elisar, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goem, these kings made war with Bera, the king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. All these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. These first, three, these first three verses paint a picture for us of this showdown at the Salt Sea. We have these four eastern kings, I'm not going to butcher their names again, fighting against these five kings of the Jordan Valley. And as we consider the ancient Near Eastern context, when, when you read king, you're not supposed to think of, of King Louis XIV of France or, or, or Henry VIII of England, these leaders of great nations with huge armies. No, these kings here are more like mayors of small to mid-sized towns, anywhere from a couple thousand upwards to, to 10 to 15,000 on the larger side. And so these are not major wars, but a significant battle, as we'll see. If you were to pull out a map and look at, the, look at a map, you'll, you'd quickly see that these four kings headed by Ketoleomer weren't from the area. And we see in verse 4, we find out what brought them to the Jordan Valley. In verse 4 writes, For twelve years they, that is the five kings in this Jordan Valley, they had served Ketoleomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. You see, the five kings had been subjected to the four eastern kings for 12 years. For 12 years, they had been forced to send their money, their food, and their resources off to these eastern kings. But after, but after 12 years, you can kind of see these kings start to look around at one another and say, why, why are we doing this? And so they all kind of make a deal with themselves. I'll stop doing it if you stop doing it. And these five kings, they, they join forces, they become allies, and they say, no more. That's it. We're not going to send you our stuff anymore. Think of that scene in, uh, in Inside Out where the dad is like, the foot is down. You know, that's what's going on here. These kings, the foot is down. They're not going to do it anymore. The four kings, the four eastern kings here, we see that they let it slide for one year. Maybe they're giving them the benefit of a doubt. Maybe they had a bad year. But as one year leads to two, these eastern kings have had it. And they go down to remind the people who they were and to get what they were owed. 
In verses 5 through 7, again, we're not going to read this, but verses 5 through 7 describe their route down to the Jordan Valley. And as you read these verses, you see that these kings are literally kicking butt and taking names. As they're on their way down to the Jordan Valley, they are just tearing through city after city, through town after town, just blowing right through them. You look at the text, it doesn't even seem like there's a struggle, like they get held up. I mean, these four kings, they don't even break a sweat. And here Moses is showing us that these four kings with their armies are a force to be reckoned with. And eventually they make their way down to the Salt Sea or the the Dead Sea in the Valley of Siddim. And there they meet the five Jordan kings who had earlier joined forces. And verses 8 and 9 set the stage for the battle and we're left wondering what's going to happen here. But as it turns out, we don't even have time to settle in for a battle scene I think all of you Lord of the Rings fans would be sorely disappointed here because as Moses starts to record this battle, he opens by describing the pits that these kings fall into as they're running away. In verse 10, Moses writes, Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen, or asphalt pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest rest fled to the hill country. It doesn't even appear that they've put up much of a fight. They're seen fleeing and falling. And if you were placing bets at home, you probably put your money on these four kings, and as expected, they rout the Canaanite kings, taking the people and their possessions as they go home. Verses 11 and 12 we read, So the enemy, those are the four eastern kings, says they took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. All would have been fine. This would have been the end of the story. In fact, we wouldn't even have this story in our Bible, except for that last verse, had they not taken Lot. But because of this particular prisoner of war, our story has a scene too. And this is the name-making rescue. As the four kings make their way home with Lot, someone is making their way to Abram. In verse 13, it says, Then one who had escaped from this battle came and told Abram the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner. These were the allies of Abram. Abram's going about his day, and he's suddenly interrupted by someone with news of Lot in the land. This person told Abram and his allies, the Amorite brothers, all about the battle, and most important, the capture of Lot. After hearing the news, Abram and his allies, they gather their forces together, and they set out to rescue Lot. Verse 14 says, When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. They've traveled about 120 miles on their journey, and at some point, some of their scouts, they spot these eastern kings off in the distance as they've settled down for the night. At this point, Abram pulls out his copy of The Art of War, and he comes up, and he comes up with a plan to attack at night. Here's a surprise attack. We read of this attack in 15 and 16. 
Moses writes, he says, And he, that's Abram, divided his forces against them, he and his servants, and they defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he, Abram, brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his, position, with his possessions and the women and the people. Attacking by night, Abraham and his allies, they do the unthinkable. They defeat this army that up to this point had been unstoppable. I mean, remember how easily they've swept through the land, how quickly they defeated these Canaanite kings. And here Abram catches this elite squad off guard, and he forces them to flee. And as they go crying home to mama, they, they abandon their, the people and the possessions that they've taken. Mission accomplished. Abraham's done what he came to do. And what we're meant to see here is in this one event, in this rescue, Abram's become a hero. He's saved the women and the children. He's brought back all the prized possessions of these five kings, and he's recaptured the land. No longer are they going to be subject to these kings. And with Abraham's victory, he's now increased his wealth. Abraham was previously wealthy, we learned from, from the gifts that the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had given to him. But here he becomes much more wealthy as he's acquired all of these possessions from the five kings. His net worth would have been something to be admired. I'm sure he was thinking at this point he's going to make the who's who's list of the wealthiest people in the ancient Near East. And not only his wealth, but his reputation would have been significantly bolstered. This military victory would have put his name on the map. Today, his, his LinkedIn profile would have, would have been blowing up with a bunch of endorsements. His Instagram account would have been blowing up with follow requests or friend requests, whatever they are. And this is Abram's name-making rescue. And it's important that we see this, this battle that's taken place, Abraham's name, Abram's name-making rescue, is important because that physical battle has set the stage for the spiritual battle that he's going to face in the final scene of our story, in the meeting with the kings. Doing what Abraham set out to do, Abram and his allies, they begin their return trip home. And on his way back, we see that he's met by two kings— one of them we've already seen before, Bera, the king of Sodom, and, the other, and another who mysteriously comes out of nowhere, Melchizedek, king of Salem. It's most likely Jerusalem. And in what follows, Moses sets up a stark contrast between these two kings, both in how they approach Abram and in his response to them. Let's first look at Abram's encounter with Melchizedek. Starting in verse 18, it says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. This mysterious figure has heard of Abram, and he goes out to meet him. And he comes bearing gifts, bread and wine. In the ancient Near East, these foods were, were staples for kings and all those of great wealth. And here we see that this generous king comes with food for Abram and all those who are with him. And at this point, we're told something very interesting about Melchizedek. Because not only is he king of Jerusalem, but he's also a priest. He's the priest of God Most High. And with this, Melchizedek is the first priest mentioned in the Bible. Remember that. It's going to come in. It's a significant point later. 
And as we continue reading, we see that this priest king approaches Abram, and after feeding him, after generously sharing his provision with him, he does what all priests do. He gives a blessing. He blesses Abram. In verses 19 and 20, we read this. We read, And he, that's Melchizedek, blessed Abram and said to him, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. As we hear these words, we're meant to be drawn back to Genesis 12, 1 through 3, where God first appears to Abram and blesses him. In fact, as we see in this passage, we see that God has already started blessing Abram by defeating his enemies, by delivering his enemies into his hand, and therefore cursing those who have dishonored Abram. And in response to this blessing, to Melchiz- and in response to Melchizedek's blessing, affirming his words is true, Abram does the only thing that he knows to do. He gives a tenth to Melchizedek. He gives 10% of the spoils that he's received from the battle to Melchizedek. And as we're going to see shortly, this interaction, which only takes up three verses in our Bibles, has huge implications for salvation history and especially for how we see and understand Christ. But first, we need to see Abram's encounter with the king of Sodom. Because if you'll remember, Moses is setting up a contrast in how each of these kings interacts interacts with Abram. Back in verse 17, we see that the king of Sodom goes out to meet Abram, and picking up in verse 21, we see their interaction. The king of Sodom speaks up and he demands, "'Give me the persons.'" but take the goods for yourself. You notice the contrast already? Melchizedek comes out with bread and wine for Abram and his people, even though Abram had done absolutely nothing for him. And here, Bera, the disgraced and defeated king of Sodom, approaches Abram, the hero, and he attempts to bargain with him. He says, look, you give me the people, including Lot, and I'll give you the possessions. Remember, Abraham left, went on this journey to rescue Lot. Lot was at the center of all of this. And here you have the king of Sodom saying, you give me all of the people, including Lot, who you went to rescue, and I'm going to let you keep the possessions. Talk about presumption here. I mean, there's no word of thanks. There's no gifts expressing his gratitude. Instead, he approaches Abram as an equal, and he tries to bargain with him which is just so interesting, seeing as how Abram could have just taken this guy out, given all the other kings he's already defeated here. But in verses 22 and 23, we read, But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that is yours. Abram says he's not only going to give him the people, but he's going to give him all of the possessions too. Abram's allies and their armies can keep their share, but but Abram's going to take nothing. And notice how specific he is. He says that he won't even take a thread or a sandal strap or anything else. And You know, those aren't exactly the highest priced goods. Those aren't the most valuable things that could have been had. But that's exactly the point. Because in here we see that Abram is refusing to have any connection with the king of Sodom. He's not even going to take a shoelace from the king of Sodom. 
And at the end of verse 23, we find out why. Abram says, I'm not going to take any of those things from you, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. We see that Abram has made an oath to God. He's lifted his hand to God, Lord Most High, vowing that he's not going to take one penny from the king of Sodom, lest this evil king be able to take some credit for what Abraham had faith that God alone would do. And so he leaves the people and the possessions with the king of Sodom, and he goes home. So as we consider why do we have this passage in our Bibles, we consider why do we have this rather odd account in our Bibles, it seems that this last passage, these verses 17 through 24, are where God is seeking to draw our attention as he highlights this spiritual battle that was taking place in the life of Abram and this spiritual battle that takes place in each and every one of our lives. Because you see, the approach of the king of, Mel- of Melchizedek, the king of Jerusalem, and the approach of, of Bera, king of Sodom, it wasn't just his interactions weren't just what am I going to do? What am I going to take here? But they were a spiritual battle that was, going to, that was going to reveal his heart. You see, Abram, who knows how many years it had been at this point since he had received these promises from God in Genesis 12. And he hadn't, re- he hadn't been receiving all of these as, as it seems he will, or as we know that he will later in the Bible. But there's this, this tension that he has when the king of Sodom offers him all of these possessions. Because in some sense, this, was a, this could have been seen as a, a get-rich-quick scheme. Abram could have received those promises. Abraham's name could have been made great. He could have taken things into his own hands by taking this gift from the king of Sodom. But instead, he refuses to do so. He refuses to trust, um, he refuses to take from the king of Sodom. And instead, he looks to God and chooses to trust in him. He says, look, I know I could receive this right now. I know I could take all of these possessions and instantly be made something right now. My name could be made great right now. But instead of doing that, he says, I'm not going to take a shoelace from you. I'm going to trust that God is going to do what he's promised to do. And instead of taking from the king of Sodom, he gives, he gives, he tithes to the king of Salem. Notice his interactions. He refuses to take from Sodom, and yet he gives to the king of Salem. For Israel, for the first readers of this passage, as they looked at this account, as they were living in the gap between God's promises and their experience of them, especially the promise of the land of Canaan that wasn't theirs yet, we see that this passage, like Abraham, is a call for them to trust God alone. You see, they lived every day in this trust tension in their hearts between whether they were going to trust God or turn from him, whether they were going to take God at his word or take matters into his own hands. And here we see that this passage was given to them to call them to trust in God alone to fulfill his promises. It's meant to encourage and to strengthen their resolve to look to God and to God alone just like Abram. And just track with me for a second to see how it would have done this. 
You see, the land that Israel had been promised, the land that they had earlier failed to enter because of fear of the people living there, is the exact same land that Abram recaptures in this battle that we saw earlier. And remember, he does this by defeating an army, one that Moses has gone out of his way to show us is a very powerful one. You see, this passage was a foreshadowing of what was going to take place in Israel's life, and it would have been a great encouragement to them. You see, in the person of Abram, their destiny had been foreshadowed. There's nothing that they were going to face that Abram hadn't already met. You see, just as God had delivered Abram and his enemies, he was going to deliver Israel's enemies into their hand too. And in defeating Abram's enemies, Israel would have seen that God had started to fulfill his promises to Abram. Promises that he would bless Abram and through him the nations. And he does this as he curses those who dishonor Abram. So that's why this text is here for Israel. This text is here to provide them encouragement and strength and strengthen their resolve to trust in God and to look to him alone. They weren't to look to other nations, but like Abram, they were to trust in God that he would do what he said. But as we consider this text's meaning for us on this side of the cross with the benefit of the rest of our Bibles— we see that this main point of, of trusting God becomes much richer. It becomes much deeper because of what we find out about this, this figure, Melchizedek. Because as I mentioned earlier, even though Melchizedek only shows up in three verses here in Genesis 14, he plays a very important role in our Bibles, especially for how we think about Jesus, his person and his work. Because Melchizedek, as a priest king, he sets a pattern that's vital for us, and it shows us how we can understand the work, the person and the work of Jesus, both who he is and what he did for us. And as we make this connection between Melchizedek and Jesus, we'll see that we have even greater reasons to trust in Jesus to, 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 trust in, in Jesus to fulfill what he's promised. And the best place for us to look to see this connection between Melchizedek and Jesus is in the New Testament book of Hebrews. We'll have these slides on the screen. But in Hebrews 5 and 6, the writer to the Hebrews makes the connection between Melchizedek and Jesus explicit when he tells us that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Look with me at Hebrews 6, 19 and 20. He's, the writer to the Hebrews says that we, sh we have this sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. See here, the writer of the Hebrews is making this connection between Melchizedek and Jesus clear for us by telling us that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And in chapter 7, the writer to the Hebrews, he unpacks the huge implications of this for us as we see its connection to our salvation and our daily life with God. You see, because Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of the Levites, we see that he mediates a better covenant for us. You see, the Levites, they were priests under an old covenant that could never really deal with sin. But Jesus is the high priest of, in the order of Melchizedek, and he's the priest of a better covenant. See what the writer says, uh, see what the writer of the Hebrews says, starting in verse 22. 
in verse 22, the writer of the Hebrews says this, that Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Because Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, it makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. He says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And here's, the, here's the, the, the main point that we're to grab from this. And it says, Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Because Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, we see that he's the guarantor. He guarantees a better covenant. And as we saw in verse 25, because he does this, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. We see that Melchizedek came blessing Abram, and Jesus is the ultimate priest king. He brings the ultimate blessing for his people, and that's the guarantee of salvation, the ultimate blessing of being in a right relationship with God. You see, this point of Jesus as our high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, it gives us better reasons to trust in God alone than Israel had, because we see, that, that, because we see in Jesus that he has fulfilled all of God's promises to us. And so the call for us is to trust in Jesus, our great high priest. And as we consider what this looks like, what this looks like for us in that gap between God's promises and our perception, I think there are, there are two takeaways for us here. The first is we seek to figure out what does it look like for us to trust God in the gap, for what it looks like to trust Jesus, our great high priest. I think the first takeaway for us is to declare our allegiance to the priest king. You see, in this battle taking place, the battle taking place was really just a backdrop for the spiritual battle that was taking place in Abram's heart, just like the battle that's constantly taking place in our hearts. You see, in that meeting between the kings, Abram had to decide whether he was going to trust God or take matters into his own hands, whether he was going to declare his allegiance to this priest king or whether he was going to take from, or whether he was going to take from the king of Sodom. I think the call for all of us here is to declare our allegiance to Jesus, the priest king, by showing that we're going to trust in him to fulfill his promises, not to take what the world has to offer, not to look around at the world. You see, the point here is that Abram couldn't do both. He couldn't, he couldn't trust and take, he couldn't take from the king of Sodom and give to the king of Salem. It was one or the other, and so it's true for us. We can't, we, the call is for us to look to God alone, to declare our allegiance to him. And we do so knowing, knowing that he's the king who blesses us. He's the king who brings the better blessing of drawing us into a right relationship with God. He's the one who saves to the uttermost. If you're here and you've, you've yet to trust in Christ, I would just call you to look to the king who blesses because Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, as the mediator of the new covenant, offers the ultimate blessing and freedom of being in the relationship with God. You see, all other kings that we look to, all other places that we look to for our blessing, they only enslave. 
I mean, I think it's fitting that when you, when you see this, uh, in, you see why Abraham turned down the blessing from the king of Sodom, it was because he knew where that led. He says, I'm going to refuse to take from you lest you say that you've made Abram rich. And the truth is that anytime we look anywhere other than our God for a blessing, it only leads to enslavement. It only leads to, to greater enslavement, whether it's money, whether it's power, whether it's, uh, whether it's look, living for sexual pleasure, whatever it is, anytime we look for our meaning and our fulfillment outside of our priest king, it only leads to enslavement. Lest you say, I have made Abram rich. So, so if you are here and you have yet to trust in Christ, turn to him, look to the king who blesses, the one who makes us rich in Christ without enslaving us. That's the first takeaway for us. Let us declare our allegiance to our priest king. And the second way, the second part, the second call for us here is to hope in our priest king. As we saw in Hebrews 6, 19, that the fact that Christ is the order, is the priest after the order of Melchizedek, that is a source of great hope for his people. Because we, when we look to Jesus, we see that he is the priest king who has assured us of our salvation, who has given us confidence to approach his throne. Think of Hebrews 4, 16, where it says that we have a great confidence to approach the, 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 so we can boldly approach the throne of mercy, where we can receive grace, where we can find help. So, so hope in your priest king. Look to him and have assurance and have confidence that he has given you the ultimate blessing of being in a right relationship with him. I want to invite the, the band to come forward. I want to release the, the ushers to prepare the Lord's Supper. And as we close, we want to do just those things. We want to declare our allegiance to the priest king, and we want to express our hope in him as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Because Jesus Christ, the, the, the priest greater than Melchizedek, on the night when he was betrayed, he too brought out bread and wine. And when he, had given, when he had given thanks for the bread, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. And in the same way, he took wine, and when he had given thanks, he blessed it and said, This is the blood of the new covenant. Drink it in remembrance of me. Church, in a minute, I'm going to pray, and then I would invite us to come forward to receive the bread and the wine from our greater priest king, and as you do so, as you take the bread, as you take the wine, just reflect on our greater priest king, the one who has brought the ultimate blessing of being in a right relationship with him. And as you do so, declaring your allegiance on him in hope. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you for the revelation of Jesus Christ the greater priest king, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, the one who has entered into the holy place behind the curtain where you have made a way for us to come to know you, to be in a right relationship with you. Father, we give you thanks for the gifts of the bread and the wine that you have brought before us as you prepare a table for us in the presence of our enemies, as you feed us on Christ. Lord, I pray that you would give us much hope as we declare our allegiance on you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.